You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. Kirk, I'm starting with a rant today. I like when you rant. Feeling ranty. Oh, I don't go on Facebook much, mm. but we're in the market for a pop-up camper right now. I like it. So a Facebook marketplace is a good place to look for used goods. At the very top of my timeline yesterday, there was a post by a young lady who I know who completed a very long race, ultra distance. And I'm going to keep things intentionally vague to avoid, I mean, some people will probably know what I'm talking about, but to avoid calling out specific people. Okay talked about that she was very sore on her run this morning and very fatigued asking for like, is this normal? Should how, you know, it was over, I think over 30 miles she did. I'd never run an ultra before and was asking for like, is this normal? Should I be feeling this sore? This was two days after her race. She went off her run. So obviously the answer is yes, you should feel sore and tired and don't even worry about running yet. Take some time. The amount of snake oil salesmen on this thread was unbelievable. And just just bro science and people being wrong, but saying it really loudly. She didn't ask for what should I do to recover? She asked, is it normal to feel this way? Uh-huh. And immediately like, you need to be taking cryo, you need cryotherapy. You need Epsom salt baths combined with essential oils. You need to have turmeric and peppermint combined together in this dosage and you know, click on that. Oh, this person's uh happens to be a essential oil salesman. Uh-huh. You know what you need to do? You need to take one day of rest for every mile you ran. You know, so what? She's supposed to take 34 days off of running. <laughs> Another person, you know, you got just everything you could ask for. You need to, the, the Epsom salt, the TENS units, the Normatec boots, the uh, cold cold showers work wonders for you. Cold water. Someone said you need to take vegetable and fruit capsules. I, <laughs> I'm not even entirely sure what that means, but if anything, it's no different than juicing or eating salads. I, I, it's just, it was unbelievable the amount of people that popped in either A, to hawk their products or B, with unscientifically founded advice. Yeah, everybody's an armchair expert these days, aren't they, Bracken? They are. And it would be one thing if she said, hey, I'm really looking for best practice recovery that's worked for you personally. Mm -hmm. So you could take out maybe even the best practice out and just say, anecdotally, what do you guys have for me? But she didn't even request advice and she got people just blowing up her spot. And the problem is when I look at that, I see that, you know, what, 300 people saw the post. It was viewed by 329 or something. And 28 people commented and how many people were now steered the wrong way because somebody ran their mouth on something they either didn't know or just had a stake in and wanted to sell some product. So that really, that really upset me. It shouldn't. That's probably why I stay off Facebook, but I'm tired of people taking advantage of others who don't have the knowledge base that they want to have 
And so people swoop in and fill that knowledge base with nonsense. Did you chime in yourself or Sunday directly? I refused to. Okay. You didn't want to help this poor woman out who is getting misguided advice. I know her. Okay. You know her personally. A little bit. Yeah. I don't believe she's going to take any of that advice. She's in medical school. Okay. But I'm not concerned about her. I'm concerned about 328 other views of it. If 10% of those people get snaked into it, you've got 32 people doing inappropriate recovery practices. Now, some of them won't hurt you. Cryotherapy won't hurt you. Epsom salt baths won't hurt you. TENS units, if they don't malfunction, won't hurt you. Taking vegetable capsules won't hurt you. Mm -hmm. Essential oils won't hurt you. But they also shouldn't be seen as this magic recovery tool because they're not. Yeah. Yeah. So it, was, it was interesting. I, I, we, we get so much good feedback on this podcast of people asking good, intelligent questions. And we try to give good, intelligent advice. And the community seems to be pretty good at sharing some of this information back and forth. And you start to feel like, man, we're putting a dent in this. And then you look around and realize there are people everywhere that either A, don't know better, but talk out of turn or B, know better and are just trying to con you. Yeah. And usually, oftentimes, the type of people that give unsolicited advice on posts like that um, aren't really specialists in what they're even discussing. They're, you know, chatting for the sake of chatting or pushing for the sake of pushing. And so my guess is you have someone who's very deconditioned, who does have never done an ultra, who's recommending vegetable capsules and has no <laughs> idea what they're actually really dealing with. And some and of these so people have frustrating. Well, and some have, you know? and that's probably even worse. But 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 just because you did it and you added it to your routine and you didn't die doesn't mean that everyone needs to jump on this routine of if you just take an Epsom salt bath and thirty six days off. Well, yeah, you're going to recover <laughs> with thirty six days off, but you might recover with twenty six or sixteen yeah. or maybe six. So it's ah blanket statements forcefully like heavy handed push down upon people that. That got to me this weekend. So anyways. That really grinds your gears. It does grind the old gears. If you're looking for information, source it out, read through comments, and think about what makes sense and what doesn't, and then research those. If vegetable capsules sound like the, the path of pure gold towards recovery, read some studies on them, and then make your own decisions. But don't go drop several hundred dollars on vegetable capsules before you do no. so. And none of, none of those things you had mentioned is truly going to help you repair on a cellular level that much faster other than rest and sleep and eat enough food to recharge mm -hmm. your batteries. Uh, we get caught up in all those fancy little gimmicks. Uh, apparently there's a lot of people out there that do, but you know, if you had to give that woman advice, let's just finish that conversation then so we don't continue to just throw shit into the universe. Right. What would be your advice, Brad? Well, first of all, it wasn't all a cesspool. There were people on there that said, one person said, take a day off for every hour of racing. I liked that. Mm -hmm. This was a six day, I mean, a six hour effort to go 30 miles. Six days off running, that's not a bad recommendation. I, in fact, I'd never heard that recommendation and I liked it. I, I kind of like that's it pretty too. Good. Yeah. I don't know how well it scales um, because a hundred hour race, I don't think you need a hundred days off, but- yeah. But, but for this recommendation there, I liked it. And there were a lot of people saying, hey, just eat well, hydrate your butt off, and sleep every chance you get. That's, that's great advice. So it wasn't all bad. It's just if people don't come in with the right sifting tools, it's tough to sift through. So, yeah, if I was, if I was coaching her, I would simply say that. 
prioritize yeah. eating, drinking, and sleeping. And as soon as you can, whatever activity level you can handle while recovering is what you should be doing. If day one, that means you go for a 10 minute walk and you do some mobility work, that's what you're doing. And you just actively recover your way through it. There'd be no pressure to run for seven to 12 days probably. You could probably extend it up. You could take this as a reset, which probably people should and take a full two weeks off, but actively move, rest, mobility, rest some more. You ever hear of a company called Amway, Bracken? I've heard of Amway. It's pretty popular, actually, in the D3 Wisconsin sports universities, isn't Listen, it? Listen, I got I got all the products you need, Bracken, on Amway. And you know what the best thing about it is? You can get a return on your investment by getting some cash back when you purchase products and get others to do the same. I got all sorts of stuff to help you recover, Bracken. It's shocking. I'm completely lying. Don't. I. That was me mocking the entire world. I know, but it's shocking that in this day and age, we have the most wide ranging, easy access to information that this planet has ever had, that we still have such bad information and confusion out there. Confusion's okay, because we all start confused when we get to a new subject area, and then we research and experience ourselves into a knowledge base. But Mm -hmm. the deception either intentionally or unintentionally, just feels unacceptable in the 21st century, doesn't it? Sure does. It's very bizarre that people can still come out here and be like, essential oils will change your life. Like unless unless they're targeting an allergy, which there is some, there is some research that shows with some allergies, some sort of essential oils have some actual benefit. Mm-hmm. Outside of things like that, the fact that people can build entire businesses upon things that are shown not to have any impact whatsoever is really strange in this day and age. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, though, is you're an expert if you say you are one in this exactly. day and age. You can have an Instagram page and fill it with whatever purposeful info you want. And suddenly people are fed this every single day. And then they go, aha, Kirk's the fitness guy who's a personal trainer. Even though I might not know shit about what I'm doing, it's just like that like subconscious that you go back and you and suddenly you are an expert. And so you have a lot of people out there who are self-proclaimed experts that really don't have much to back it up. And that is probably the main problem with people pushing things on social media. And it comes down to that. I give that advice all the time. Like when I have friends who are trying to get into the fitness expert, uh, industry and I say, like, hey, you're pretty good at what you do. Like, I really believe maybe you should pursue this. I say, act like an expert on, on social media and people will believe you. And I tell that to people who I believe are doing a good job. But like you could do that with your snake oil or you mm-hmm. could do that with family or you could do it with anything you'd like. And people will eventually drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. Second thing I saw was someone promoting a 14-day belly fat loss they did. Oh, when does, when does your shipment come in? <laughs> oh, it's here. I paid $100 to get it overnight. But it was it was a 14-day program, and they did pictures on day one, day 14, and then in the middle. And it was just the classic bad lighting, push your belly out, better lighting, suck it in a little bit, and then work out, get a pump, suck it in, flex, buzz your stomach hair, and have really good lighting. That was, mm-hmm. it was one of those. And and all these comments of, wow, incredible. So inspirational. And yeah. Inspirational is fine, but also go and look at the rest of the post and realize they're trying to sell you something. So yeah. I guess if there's a takeaway here, it's do your research. Always do your research. Do you want to know something completely messed up? So 
Uh, and we all have to move into our subject of the day, but I've been in the fitness world for a while and I've done a few different like photo shoots and other things. And I've been approached about advertisements and such, especially more back in my bachelor days, but oftentimes in the weight loss industry specifically, or the muscle gain industry or anything, when you see a before and after shot, the before is actually the after and the after is actually the before, because this is a guaranteed result. So they'll take somebody who's very fit. They'll take their after photo. Then they'll say, go eat like shit, go gain a bunch of weight, and we will take your before photo because that's much easier to achieve the desired result than do the opposite. So they'll actually take, they'll flip-flop photos and take a fit person and get them fat and then reverse the order of the photo taking. That happens in the industry, hands down. That's so schemey. I mean, what if somebody said, Bracken, all right, you're going to be our guy and we're going to pay you 10 grand to gain 20 pounds. And they said, let's take your before today or your after today and then pay you 10 grand to gain 20 pounds. What do you do? And that's the thing. I'd like to be able to say, I care more about the misinformation than I do about 10 grand. But until you're in that moment, you don't know. And not everyone holds themselves to the same standard. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people out for them and their bottom line. It's not, it's not like that's a regulated industry. You can slap anything you want on anything yep. you want. You don't need to document in any other way other than you're claiming that this had happened and and results may vary, right? Yeah. Well, the, results, the results may vary if your before is your after and your after is before. Only two terms you need to know. Results <laughs> may vary and proprietary blend. <laughs> proprietary blend. Here's some sawdust sprinkle with just a titch of creatine, but trust me, it'll get you there. Yeah. Shall, shall we? This is a longer tangent, 14 minutes. Shall we? Why don't you tell the good people of the running public what we're talking about today? So that, that preamble there had no bearing whatsoever on our topic. <laughs> None. None. None at all. We're not talking about anything like that. We're talking about skill work in running. When we define skill work, I define it as anything that is not engine related. Building mm-hmm. your engine, aerobic capacity, anaerobic capacity, that is a standalone thing. Skill work is what you add on top of that to be able to use that in your particular race. So uphill running downhill running, technical terrain, muddy terrain. I would call compromised running kind of one foot in each camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so thing, things that affect your running other than just your overall engine, the skills that come with it. For a marathoner, that can be rolling hills, or it could actually be running in heat or altitude. Um, for a mountain runner, it could be downhill running or climbing or repeated ascents and descents of thousands of feet. It can be running in a creek bed or on, you know, scree running on the side of a mountain. But anything that goes along with running is what I would consider skill work. Yep. And of course, the obstacle side of things, if you are an OCR racer, would all, would all be skill work as well. And I think the conversation with that has to start with um how to implement skill work and how to look at it from like a a broad stroke situation and that would be do you for example separate engine building from skill work do you try to do them simultaneously is there a right way to approach for example getting ready for a particular race that's going to involve particular skills constantly layering them into your programming or having step one i'm just going to train my engine. Step two, I'm going to filter in skill work. Step three, I'm going to hone my craft with the skill work or skill work. Like, where do you fall on that camp? Well, that's the entire topic, right? That That's the big question is, do you do it all the time? Do you do it right before a race or you do it 
in periodized doses. And it's so tricky because there are examples on both sides of the tracks for everything. If you look at regular runners, if you would look at the marathon trials this year, you had two camps because it was held in Atlanta, Georgia, which was the, the hilliest marathon trials course they've had in probably a decade. You know, I've been meaning to ask before you continue, um, what was the gain during that marathon? Do you know? I think it was like sixteen or 1,800 feet over 26 miles. Which is a ton for a road marathon. For That's a road marathon, sure. yeah. It's laughable for a trail race, but it's a lot for a 26.2-mile pavement race. It was over 1,000 feet, though, for sure. Huh? I'm fairly certain. Yeah, we'll okay. have to look that up, but my gut said 16 to 1,800 feet. That Well, with that sort of gain, it would warrant skill work on, on yes. that on that behalf. So, yeah. So you had three camps of people. You had people that did not change their training at all. They said, I know what works for me. I can handle that amount of up and down. It's not that much. I mean, that's, that's, that's not a hundred feet per mile or anything crazy like that. I'm going to be fine. Then you had the camp that from day one said, I am working on uphills and downhills in my training. And then the third camp was the closer we get, the more I'm going to do race specific terrain. And you saw people from all three camps succeed. All three camps do what they would normally do and all three camps crumble. And so it wasn't definitively answered other than the people that did no preparation did the worst. Yeah. So it really comes down to when do you add skill work in? In our own sport, we have great examples of this. We have people that do their skill work totally in a vacuum. It's only done in the weight room in terms of obstacles and carries and transitions. You have people who do it in almost every single workout. And then you have people that do some skill work and some never skill work. So I'd look at John Alvin. John Alvin works on uphill, downhill, and technical skill work almost every single day of his entire adult life. Mm. He lives in the mountains and off trail. So he's always, always doing it. And he sharpens up the skill work of flat ground, smooth ground running when he needs to. Right. But he almost never touches obstacles or carries, almost never. And you could argue that he lost two or three world championships because he didn't touch carries. You could. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where you have people like Hobie who would do, he would do skill work every single week, multiple times a week and only touch mountains and technical terrain when he was prepping for an event. So it happens on both sides. I have feet in both camp as well. I think it depends on the athlete, but I want to hear yours first and then I'll describe when I would do it and when I wouldn't. Well, I'm going to take the obvious route here, and the obvious route is that the foundation of our sport, whether you're an OCR athlete, a marathon, or a mountain runner, is our engine, our aerobic, anaerobic base, our ability to put out work over an extended period of time. So, of course, like the foundation of everything else we're talking about, including skill work, must be built on the fact that you have an engine that can perform, right? Mm -hmm. So, So in that sense, and we're kind of in a really... I don't know, like a relevant time to talk about this because we're in this abyss of no races and who knows how early in 2021 they're really going to resume. So do we drop the skill work of what we're working towards? Like if I got a two hour drive to the mountains every time I want to go hit them and it's a pain in the ass, do I just skip that for a few months because I don't really need to be doing it right now? Do I not go out of my way to hit the rock climbing gym twice a week because, well, I don't really need my grip strength till February at the earliest. Um, or do I try to keep those things in and just keep like the edge of the knife sharp? And so this actually is fairly timely in that sense, because we don't have the urgency of skill required races coming up and people hem and ho over, I'm letting my grip work slip, or I haven't done carry work. And should I feel guilty about that? 
Or do I work the foundation of this whole damn thing, which is putting time on feet, working the engine and layering it in later. And so the conversation really starts there for this point in time. And the camp I take right now is that I think because of the current situation that taking things maybe one step at a time and layering them in a little bit later, unless it's a very glaring weakness of yours to the point where you know it will detriment future performance, it might be okay to focus on one thing right now and then so you, you don't detriment the most important piece being your engine by distracting it with other work. And then once you feel happy with that foundation, then maybe filtering in the skill work as season approaches. That would probably be like my blanket advice if I didn't know your current situation. Yeah, without a doubt, you can build skill on top of fitness quicker than you can build fitness on top of skill. Yes, exactly. And so I would always prioritize engine development. Mm -hmm. Build the biggest possible engine and then worry about if you're putting on your slick tires or your knobby tires. Mm -hmm. Rather than really spend a lot of time figuring out which tires work for which terrain and all that good stuff. And then realizing my engine sucks and I have three weeks. I'd rather have right. three weeks to get good at going over walls or going down hills or getting good at carries than I would have three weeks to drop two minutes off my 5K. Yeah. So that's, that's my overarching premise there is that skill work can always built, be built later as you go along. However, there are certain skill sets that are affected differently by training or and vice versa. Different training skill sets affect your body differently. So downhills, for example. Downhill is something that I believe is worth putting in a block earlier than later because science has shown with eccentric impact and eccentric motions that if you put in, especially with downhill running, but it, you could just talk eccentric in a vacuum or downhill specifically, if you put in a, a block of downhill running that within a few weeks of doing it, you get a really good return on your investment. And then after that, you start to plateau a little bit mm -hmm. because it's very damaging to your body. And there's only so much that you can improve on the actual impact itself, but you can maintain those if you just touch upon it every 12 to 21 days, you can maintain up to 80 to 90% of that initial big block of training for a long, long time. We're talking months. Yeah. So I would put in a downhill block earlier than later so I can just keep touching upon it basically every other week throughout the, the year or even every third week if you wanted to, and then come back to it when you need to sharpen it. So something like that, I would front load. I don't, uh, what are your feelings on that? Well, if you're talking about if you're talking about downhill running or eccentric loading, yes. um, specifically, gosh, like saving that skill work to leave for the last three weeks leading into a race is going to leave you flat, sore, mm -hmm. and unable to perform because of how long that takes to recover from. So I agree with you completely. That would be a skill that you definitely would want to get ahead of because leaving that one to the last minute, we all know we've had this conversation with your Killington performance followed by how you felt at the mm -hmm. world champs a few weeks later. Um, that's one that I think, I mean, that's one that should, that's one that should almost be infused in your training at some point all the time, because yeah. those growing pains of adding that in, if you haven't done it in a while are pretty detrimental. So I agree with you on that camp. Um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's two, there's the other thing to look at with this as far as skill work goes. And I just want to touch on this just a little bit and get your philosophy as well, before we jump into the real nitty gritty is strength work 
Okay. Do you lump all of strength work into skill work or do you say foundational movements is, is not, that's like a different thing in itself. And then when you get specific with your movements, single leg movements, or like a pull up or like a muscle up or a wall over that counts as skill work, or do you lump all strength training into skill work? I lump most strength training into foundational work. Yeah. As do I. And then I, for a runner, there's very little skill work involved in strength training in my eyes, unless you start talking plyometric movements, mm-hmm. even, uh, even isometric, you know, single leg movements, I still count as foundational. Yeah. They might happen further along in the cycle, but I don't count them as sports specific skill, but bounding and jump roping and, you know, single leg box jumps, those can be more skill work, especially if you're talking a very fast paced race or an off-road race. I think that's sport specific, but that's how I separate it. And then with our sport of obstacle course racing, anything that's directly skill-based for an obstacle, I count skill. So grip work, I count as skill work. Yep, I agree. But if I'm doing heavy farmer's carries, I still count that as more foundational. Sure. So I, I have probably, if we're talking 80, 20 for running, that's probably, probably 80, 20 for strength as well. 80, 80 to 90% is foundational and 10 to 20 is skill work. Okay. Well, let's talk like, let's talk skill work of the overall engine or your fitness, because maybe there's a component there that people could focus focus on right now. And when I say that, I mean... We just had an episode with VJ Jones. Mm-hmm. We had an episode with Richard Diaz before that. Of course, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, another guy that comes to mind is Rich Ryan, who has been working on uh, his form in general. And that is the skill work of just becoming more efficient. Yes. And keeping that by itself right now would be a really, really, really smart thing to do. I've always been on the fence with this, like your biomechanics are your biomechanics and your run form is your run form and don't change it because it's only going to be to detriment. And I don't know if, if my original school of thought there is correct after hearing what some people have to say after they've worked on things like cadence and, and efficiency. And so I think step one, if you feel like you're a heel striker, you, you're inefficient, you have extra movement in your pattern. I think you could almost call this period in time, like a good a good spot to work on the skill of running efficiently. And I think that would be something that could pay the most dividends once racing season continues. So if you're curious or want to clean things up a little bit, maybe diving into the camp of your biomechanics, working on your cadence and playing around with that might be like a smart block to do right now. It certainly is going to be something that I look into once I'm running again, seeing I've been injury prone. Clearly I need to work on some of that stuff, but I think there's others in that camp too. So it could start as early as that and simply with just running. Yes. And I would say the mechanical skill work of running should never be absent. But my biggest emphasis on it is earlier in the block. So when I start up a base building phase, cadence, form, foot strike, all of that is a huge point of emphasis. Yes. Because I believe just like your house can only be built as tall and as, as wide as your foundation, a crappy foundation doesn't help you build your house higher. If things are all cattywampus and crooked, that that's not helpful. So it, when we're talking mechanical skill of running, your stride, your cadence, your foot strike, all that, your arm carriage, your relaxation, I think that that is a skill that is always worked on. 
It is okay. heavily focused on in base. It is heavily focused on every time you change to a faster pace of running and you definitely hone it in and focus again as you're prepping for a race because you want to be perfect in your movement. So I, I'm with you. I don't believe in form change for many people. Some people mm -hmm. definitely you need to change your form. Yep. But for most, I believe in form optimization, cleaning everything up, becoming the best version of that that you can do. But yeah, that's all year round. You're, you are correct. And I'm glad you brought that up, that the form skill work always needs to be worked on. That's not something I would build my engine up with crappy form and then try to refine it right before a race. Yeah, I, I think it was just worth bringing up because it's been part of our conversations recently. <laughs> and it's been a little bit top of mind for me. Uh, and I also think back to like a Ryan Kempson episode we had, which was in the beginning of this podcast, really a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And he had mentioned the way he really got good was to take one craft and hone in on it and master it completely before he moves to his next craft that he masters it and then moves on. And he just filters in a little bit of everything he's mastered once he has mastered a number of things just to keep the fire lit, so to speak. So I just think like we're kind of playing the long game here. It's not like we have anything pressing next week or next month. Most of us don't. And so maybe mastering, picking the skills in which you need the most work on should be mastered one at a time methodically. I mean, if there's any time to be methodical, it's now. And, and look at the skills that way. If you know you're a weak descender or you're a weak climber or your grip strength is shit on cold, wet obstacles, uh, now we maybe build that foundation. And so that's where I would start to steer people is become a master of one before you come like a master of none, but like a jack of all trades and methodically list out your weaknesses and then check them off the list that way. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I'm a big fan of making a strength and weakness column mm -hmm. at throughout a season constantly and prioritizing what needs first development. So if my uphill, downhill, carries, grip, and form all suck, I'm starting with form. 100%. And then I am moving into downhill. Sure. To get it out of the way. So then I can keep that work throughout the year semi-regularly and draw upon the work I've put in. And then I'm moving into grip and carries and uphill. Grip and carries can be done in the weight room. So I can work on that alongside anything else. And I truly believe that we have seen enough examples of people in this world that if you are a fantastic flat runner with great fitness, it doesn't take a ton of work to pair that to uphill skill. Whereas you can take a fantastic flat runner and it might take them six weeks or six months before they can bomb down a hill. Mm -hmm. Uphill is simply a function of power. That's all it is. If you have great aerobic power and anaerobic power, you could run up a hill and you may be less efficient at it initially, but within, I would say two to three weeks, you can change your uphill trajectory. And within six, you're a different animal if you yeah. have the high fitness coming in. So it sounds weird to say it, but I would almost leave uphill running for last, unless I was going to take the approach that uphill running is no different than any other running. And right. all my recovery runs, all my easy runs, are, all my speed work is going to be done at incline other than my downhill work. You can absolutely take that approach, but I don't know if it'll make you any better than if you did all flat work and then got steeper once you got your fitness. I really don't know if we would see the difference because we've seen people like Matt Novakovich who would spend literally 100% or 95% of their time uphill and were far and away the best climber in the sport, arguably 
top five to 10 in the world, all sports combined at one point in time. And then you saw people come in with great flat ground speed and catch up to him within a, a half year to a year. Right. But yeah. it would have taken him years to ever get back down to their flat ground speed. So I would say, even though it sounds strange, that uphill running might be the last skill I'd work on if I had a ton of other weaknesses at play. And I didn't well, have a mountain race coming up really quickly. But what are the skills in the pool that we're even considering here? So we have general engine and fitness. Okay, we'll just, that's like the underlying, that's the base to the pyramid. We have like descending, we have climbing, we have technical terrain. Yep, I would do technical terrain before uphill. Yeah. Yeah, but you also have to know your weaknesses, and if Correct. you know you're a shit climber, then yeah. just getting comfortable in that in that mode. For me, my gosh, and for you, I, I spent 34 years never running up a hill bigger than whatever was on my city streets, mm -hmm. and then found Spartan Race and got my ass handed to me at Lake Tahoe, which was the first mountain I ever ran up. If you're in my situation, you're a Midwest guy, you're a South guy or girl, like mm -hmm. you might wanna. That might be part of your new fitness base. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But if you had never run trails ever, never run up a hill, never run down a hill, never run off-road, but you were a road monster, what event would you do better at? A flat off-road super technical race or a super steep race on smooth terrain? Super steep race on smooth terrain. Right. Case in point, I get you. And I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying that it translates way better flat and smooth than it does off-road. And uh, Ian Caskey, a good friend of both of ours, is a guy I always think about with this, where he is a very strong runner. Mm -hmm. and he's also a very strong climber. But if he gets off-road, he struggles with cramps historically because he doesn't do much off-road training, and that's what he's prone to. The technical terrain, he can't pair his skill to technical terrain as well as he can pair it to up and downhill. And I think that's more common. So if I had to put a block in, I'd, I'd start running a lot more technical before I'd start running uphill. Now, I don't think you have to choose because uphill is not damaging. And that's the final point I'd like to make about this is right. that uphill is not damaging. There are skills that are damaging to your body. Uphill is not one of them. The worst that can happen with running uphill is that you forget to work on flat ground speed or any speed whatsoever, and your form can change a little bit. Your posture can change. If you spend all your time running uphill on the incline trainer, your form and posture do start to change. And so you have to keep the skill of flat and fast in there, or at least do sprint intervals uphill. But yep. if you're doing things in a holistic approach that... Um, hill running can be done all the time or at the end as you get within six weeks of a race. But I'm not yeah. talking leave it till two to three weeks out. I'm talking six to eight weeks out before a mountain race. You should really start hitting it. You know, we really should break this conversation down into two parts. And one is, okay, in season and preseason mm -hmm. because they make a big difference. And I, I don't think we'll touch on this again. Maybe we'll touch on this conversation again once season rolls around, but I'm doubting it. So we should probably cover both. And right now we're in preseason. I see some of you guys out there racing or there's local gyms are putting on OCR simulators. Good on you. Like that is awesome. But I think in the preseason phase, which we are in, and I was having this conversation today with a client of mine at the gym I was training who also does Spartans. And I was thinking about this and just given the state that we're in, we haven't really talked about COVID a whole lot lately. And that's okay. Like that conversation has been a little worn thin, but you start really thinking about, you know, early Spartan season or OCR or trail racing in like mid to late winter. And I'm just not super hopeful that they're going to happen quite yet. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking if we're really looking at this, man, I think 
Again, it's all speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's the spring, early summer when when big companies like Spartan can commit to a series and not have to backtrack and not, you know, it's been more as much of a pain as it's been for us as athletes. It's been more of a pain for the races, the organizations, you know, figuring out refunds, rescheduling season passes. Um, it's been obnoxious. So the point I'm making is that we may be in this pre, if I were to bet, I would bet we're going to be in this preseason phase longer than, oh, 2021, the, the dial has turned, the calendar is now 2021, race is on. Like, I think we're all still just kind of dreaming a little bit there. Mm-hmm. And so I think you just have to make that part of this conversation with the skill work thing. And that's why I would push people right now to slow play it, mm-hmm. to slow play it, to like really, really slow play it. And that's why I go back to working one skill and mastering it. And if that means like putting all of your like emotional and physical energy into building an aerobic base right now and just getting comfortable with time on feet or sharpening speed you never really feel you had, I would just really push people. And you can do some of that other stuff we're talking about, like the skill work on rugged terrain or ups or downs. But like, if there's any time right now to not get distracted with the frills of racing and Mm -hmm. working on the core principles, like it is now, are we really even going to be racing four or five months from now? I don't really think so. So I just like, think we have to address that. No, you're right. And and I look back to college and then I look back to OCR and all any style of racing I ever did. And one of the scarier things to ever hear was that somebody you race against spent all off season doing one thing. Totally. In college, it was always this guy ran 80 to 100 miles all summer mm-hmm. if he was a speed guy or if he was an endurance guy. This guy prepped for the mile all winter, but he's a 10K guy. And everyone's like, oh, man, he had everything he used to have. But now that 10K guy's got mile speed or this miler suddenly has half marathon endurance or an o- sport of OCR. This guy spent all winter climbing. Or this guy spent all spring working on his descents. When you hear about someone that took a block and worked on one thing and mastered it, that's really, really disconcerting because you know that as soon as they hit that portion of the race, they're going to be better than everyone else at it with less effort, but then they're going to get back to their other stuff and not be any worse at it. And so that's always really scary to hear. Mm-hmm. I agree. I actually really like like that uh, you outlined that because- people's tendencies are to continue to like hone their craft or do what they're good at or what they enjoy doing. And you could almost look at that. Like if you've already been doing the things like, let's say you're a slow grinder and you like to just go out and put miles in and not worry about effort or pace or anything like that. Like you can revert back to that really close to race state without us, without a problem. So picking those points of emphasis, just like you said, like the miler training, like more 10 K is stuff like, it's such a good way to, because I feel like you, most people fall into one of two camps, which is like, I feel pretty naturally fast and I have a ball sport background, but I can't sustain it as long as I would like to, or I like to go on long slogs with my dog or on the weekend in the trails, but man, running a mile is painful. Mm-hmm. Like you are the prime candidate to focus and focus on the opposing skill right now. And in that case, I would call it a skill. I would call it a skill that you haven't developed yet. And so so doing that is exactly probably the right prescription if you feel like you are on one end of the spectrum. And if you're in the middle and you feel like you have good balanced fitness, I guarantee if you started listing out your weaknesses, you could pick one or two to hone in on. And so that's where I would start. Like if you're going to say immediate takeaways would be to list out your weaknesses, list out your strengths, 
and then start working on your weaknesses. And then you can filter in your strengths once things get closer. And you're probably going to come in with like a brand new set of skills uh, that would be dangerous come race day. Yeah. And, and it's important to remember the things you're already good at, you can stay good at with less work than other people. Yep. If you are fantastic at obstacles, fantastic at transitions, fantastic at speed, but you just can't grind for two hours. If you put in a six to 12 week block of working on grinding and you just keep a little bit of that other stuff sprinkled in, you're going to come out the other side with this brand new engine and it's not going to take long to get your other skills back to where they were. They're not going to atrophy that much. Yeah. We talk about, it's like, if you've worked a skill or you've worked a craft for a long time, it's like every time you work that skill or that craft, you deposit a little money in that bank. You deposit a little money in that bank. And you know how bank accounts work. You can always go and withdraw that money at some time and use it, right? It's not all completely lost if you leave that skill alone or work it less. Like you will be able to access that bank account when the time comes, as long as you do a little bit of maintenance, keep putting a little money in there. Yeah. That bank account is already full of money you've been putting in for years. So all you do is you just just keep depositing a little bit, but focus on like your other bank account that's kind of running yeah. dry. And I like that analogy because just like a bank account, there are fees you'll have to pay along the way that'll start sucking a little bit of money out of there each month. You'll lose yeah, a, little sure. bit, a little bit, but the fees are so small that if you just pay attention to it, and redeposit from time to time, you're fine. Mm -hmm. You're not going to wake up one morning and be like, oh, my account's dry. They charged me $20,000 in fees last month. <laughs> no, you got charged $14 in fees last month. You can refill that real quickly. And that's exactly how your strengths work. It's so true. I, I had the, as I was talking about the Spartan racing season, I had this, the same client this morning and I'm on 12 weeks of no running right now. And they said, are you like, like how are you feeling? Like, where's your head at? And I said, you know, I have been putting money in the endurance bank since I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. Even fees aside, right? Even the monthly maintenance fee, I still got a large amount of money in the bank account. And sure, it's going to take a little bit for me to access it in there, but it's still there. And that's why I'm not panicking because I know I can, I can make a withdrawal eventually. And then we're going to get that cash flow going again. And like, and the same thing works with all these specific skills. I, I, I agree with that. So so I think the point that I, I don't know, I'm suddenly just trying to make is that like work, work your weaknesses, which is obvious, and sprinkle in your craft, but like do it for an extended period of time right now. Mm -hmm. Like not just a week or two. We're talking like true, like periodized training, looking at spring racing, which is possibly six, eight months away, heaven forbid, but it's possible you have the time, so don't rush the process. Me personally, I put in a block of heavy carries and obstacle-specific work in 2012, and it okay. carried me until 2016. Can you can you be more specific with what you did? Yeah. So I, at that time, I had one goal in life, and that was to beat Hobie Call. And my first race, I stuck with him for a half mile. And the second race, I stuck with him for a mile. And the third race, a mile and a quarter. And then a mile and a half. And we kept getting to the next stage of the race. And suddenly I had to go, it started with over, under, through. He put five seconds on me over, under, through. And then I'd have to run him down. And he's so fast that it took, and I was fresh out of college. I was fast. I'd mm -hmm. run him down aggressively because I had that ability. And then I'd be so tired going to the next thing. And so the first time I got, I like upgraded my fitness enough, I got to the barbed wire crawl with them and I came out 20 seconds behind. So mm -hmm. I went back and I did a ton of barbed wire crawl. And then I got to the next, I just kept seeing new versions of things that I'd never watched him do. I did a, I did a block of walls 
where I focused on medium and tall. So five foot and eight foot walls for three weeks. Every mm. interval work I did, I did over walls. Okay. I had 400s. I did 100 meters hard to the wall, over it, over it, back, forth, back, 300 meters more. So I just got good at hitting it on the fly and then hitting it standing still and then launching off and going. Mm-hmm. I did three weeks of every single, if I had mile intervals, I'd do it right in the middle. I'd do 800 meters, hit the wall, 800 more meters. And after three weeks of that, I got really efficient and fast at walls to the point where I was the fastest that I knew at walls. And it carried me for two to three years because the skill work of the race was enough because I'd mm-hmm. made such skill work there that I just had to refresh it. And I was racing, you know, 15 to 20 times a year for those years. So that was enough skill work. It was twice a month or or so every three weeks I was doing it. I maintained that skill work until I finally got injured and stopped racing. And now I didn't have any skill work. And then they became difficult again to hit hard and efficiently. So mm-hmm. my point being that I, and then carries were the same thing. I finished every lifting session with two by seven minute carries. I'd pick a bucket and I wouldn't put it down for seven minutes. And then I'd put a sandbag or a double sandbag and I wouldn't put it down for seven minutes. So long carry. It was. And I wasn't trying to be fast. I was just time under tension and getting used to it. And then towards the end of that block, I started adding hard carries in between interval sets. I might do instead of eight by 800, I do uh, three sets of three by 800 and I do a heavy carry in between. Mm-hmm. And by the end of that, I was good. And I became a really strong bucket carrier to the point where at the NBC races, I was having one of the top three bucket splits on every race for an entire year. And I hadn't touched it that year, mm-hmm. but I just had better fitness that year and the skill from the year before. So you can front load some of these skills. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Put in a block of emphasis and then mm-hmm. let it carry out and prioritize the skills that have staying power. Downhill yeah. running has staying power. Technical obstacle work has staying power. Heavy carries has staying power. Efficiency has staying power. Hill work, you can build that as you go. But those other things, once you establish them, you can revisit them every two to three weeks and you're fine. And well, you think, if you think, if we use the continue to use the bank account analogy, let's say you have multiple bank accounts and one is your fitness, one is your heavy carries, one is your grip work, one is your descending, one is your climbing. And you choose to make deposits in all these bank accounts like sporadically. So you just put a little in this one and then a little in that one and a little in that one. Well, none of them really like accrue wealth very fast, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can if you can just load one up and move to the next, you're going to have like a fully saturated bank account and then you can go work on the next and the next. And when you have the luxury of time, which we do now, I would argue that you're just going to see better progress if you if you do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it was going to take you 10 years to fill all of them up sporadically or by spending a year on each one, you would look and say, uh, it doesn't matter which route I do, but your checking account is going to matter a whole lot more than your vacation fund. You might not yeah. need that vacation right. fund for a year, but you want to get that checking account up real quick. And that's what we're talking with aerobic development or downhill mm-hmm. running, things that you're going to need sooner than later. And the rest we can develop as we go. So we split them up like, okay, like aerobic development, general underlying fitness and ability to do work, uphill, downhill, technical running, those things. If we talk non like run work and you had to prioritize any other skills that people could focus on right now that would benefit their race the most. And I'm just going to talk OCR specifically right now. Like I would hands down point everybody towards heavy carries. If you're going to see the biggest improvement If you're already a pretty efficient athlete, 
I feel like, and you look at races like Tahoe and the double sandbag, if you look at, you know, Spartan's gotten a little soft on us mm-hmm. with some of their carries lately. And that's unfortunate, but it's true. But when the one comes that matters, you see three, four, five, ten minute differences in carries amongst people, which can make or break your race. You use John Albin as an example in Tahoe. I mean, you were right there on top of the hill on the double sandbag, and he looked way in over his head, did he not? Yeah, and he came from the top of the mountain down to the carry with momentum, passing people the whole way. He came in there looking better than anyone in the field. He was on the roll. If that carry wasn't there, he would have been in first place by the bottom of the mountain. Correct. Not even an issue, but he came in the best and he left the worst, not even close, the worst. You said to me, I remember how much I was hurting on top of that. And I didn't set those things down once and I gutted it out. It was one of the top 10 splits, but it was the greatest I had. And all you said to me on top of that hill was, you look a hell of a lot better than Elvin did. And that was uh, that was testament because I knew how rough I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And that was a boost I needed. But at the same token, what I'm trying to say is like, I bet you Albin took five more minutes than Atkins on that carry. Yeah. And that carry only took Atkins three and a half minutes. Yeah. Start doing math on that. Something I love about High Rocks, even though I don't love High Rocks, something I love about High Rocks is that it's so conducive to math. Mm-hmm. You just you get your split for everything. Every run took me this long. Every station took me this long. I had this much transitions. So now I can break down, and this is what I've been doing with athletes. You break down the percentage of time you spend at every location. And so you can get done with your race, take a look at all your splits and see, I spent a disproportionate amount of time here. Or the average person spends 25% of their race doing this, or you spend, it's a 60-40 split between work and running. It's really black and white and easy to see in high rocks, but with a little bit of digging, you can find that for regular racing, for obstacle racing, for cross country, for road Mm -hmm. racing. You can break down the demands of your race. So if you're preparing for those Atlanta Olympic trials, looking back at the last one, and then looking forward to the next one, you can see, okay, people spent 11% of their race running uphill and they spent 8% of their race running downhill. Now I have a good idea of how much swing can happen on each one of those. And you can look at OCR and say, whether you want to admit it or not, 90% of your time on course at a minimum on each course is spent running. Yeah. And so now we know what the point of emphasis of our training is. But of that remaining 10%, the vast majority goes to heavy carries and barbed wire crawl. Those are the big time chunks spent. And so if you're not optimizing your crawls and your carries, that's a place where you can be really just as good as everyone else, have one obstacle you're bad at. And if it happens to be a carry, you can lose two or three minutes and you're not making that up on a run. And then after that, you have in descending order, other things that take time, like a Hercules hoist or the Z wall or, um, Atlas carry, little things like that. But there's not much of a swing there. The big swings come from running, barbed wire crawl, and heavy carries. I, yeah, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that if your weakness lies in one of those three, now you can spend some time on one of those three. Well, and if we're going to expand that further, we're really talking, you know, you got your running uphill, you got your descending downhill, you have your general running, and then you really do, you have your carries or you have your obstacles slash time doing burpees. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could outline the barbed wire crawl in itself just because sometimes those things can get so long. But if you break it down simply, 
you're, you're flat running, you're ascending, you're descending, your carries or your ability, ability to do all other obstacles efficiently in which don't cost you burpees, right? So yeah. you have like five things you're breaking down, up, down, flat, carries, burpee potential obstacles. That's really it, right? Mm -hmm. I can't think of anything else if you're thinking of OCR. And if you're a marathoner or a trail runner, okay, get rid of like heavy carries and burpee potential obstacles and you have the other three. Nutrition. And nutrition, sure. So I just outlined five simple things, right? Foundational things and then a few specific skill things. So if you keep it simple, because it can still be cloudy on like what you should run, right? So which one of those five need the most work? And if one of your five happens to be slipping off a monkey bars when they're wet, or they happen to be not getting a good grip on Z wall, well then work those specifics, but I can well, look at them to that. Okay. There's a second list that needs to be made and it's comparing not just what we've done, but also potential for blow up. So in the marathon, your nutrition maybe only takes 45 total seconds of your actively doing it during a race, but it has the potential for 20 minutes of hardship or a DNF. Yeah. In our sport, a wet monkey bar, might take 12 seconds. It's not even worth thinking about, except the potential is for blowing up your entire race and doing burpees. Mm-hmm. And so some of those potential obstacles need disproportionate amount of work compared to obstacles that you know don't have any potential for anything to go wrong. Yeah, yeah. If I were, that's a good point to make. If I were you listening, I would say, do I need speed work? Do I need uh, long grindy work um, to get better? Uh, you should know your weaknesses or strengths. Focus on one of those and just general in your training. And then I think you can pick another skill on top of that to start right away, whatever that might, whatever that may be in your eyes. And it's okay to sit in just a pure running block for the next few months. I don't think there's a problem with that. But as we talk about, if you're really, you know, the people who are good at this sport, the one theme that I am realizing as we talk to all these people uh, through our athlete interviews is like, everybody is a, really a true student of the sport. I was actually overly impressed with VJ last week, just the way, like, I thought he was just a young kid being told what to do. No, that kid is methodical. He's yeah. understanding the way things work. He's programming his own strength. He's becoming a student and a master of this sport. And everybody who is good is doing that, right? And I know a lot of you are aspiring to bump from open age group or age group to elite, or you're already an elite and you want to get better. Well, it's time to become a master of these crafts. And if you're going to do that, that means looking ahead, planning out some periodized focused training, and then implementing it. We talk about our, you know, you talked about your famous 56 week plan, for example, Mm -hmm. which whatever it was. Okay. It might make sense for you to start just putting together like broad periodized um, training in the future. So you say, okay, I am just going to focus on, I need speed. I'm going to focus on speed till December. In December, I'm going to start filtering in carries because two carries blew me up last year and I lost a lot of time. And then you can at like, least start putting together some sort of relevancy to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Find sit in the abyss for a little while of I'm just going to do what I feel like. But like, really, we should start getting back to work because like the last thing you want to do is just float through these next few months and then still have to play catch up on that skill work later when really you could be laying some foundation now. And I just think, I think now's the time. You don't have any pressure to, to be sharp. You don't have any pressure to do everything all at once. So become a master of a few crafts and, and come in next year, you know, feeling good about yourself. Yeah, I like that. And now I want to talk about how I would do that. Mm-hmm. The beautiful thing about 80-20 training is that it leaves you fresh in between your workouts. And so your workouts can be really intentional. You could, you could script out the same 12-week plan, just one plan where you have, let's say, six weeks of base building, 
three weeks of threshold work and three weeks of, of really fast work. Let's say that that's just what you are going to do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be that, but let's say you have a 12 week plan. You can go through that plan three times in a row with a little mini resets in between with a different point of emphasis. So block one, your point of emphasis is your 20% happens downhill. And block two, your 20% happens on the nastiest terrain you can find. And block mm -hmm. three, it happens uphill. But throughout those second two blocks, every third or fourth workout contains a previous skill. Mm -hmm. But so you could do, let's say you're doing the classic, you're, you're going to do 12 by 400 on Wednesday and you're going to do five by mile on Saturday. Let's just say you do six weeks of that, take two weeks down and do six weeks more, two weeks down, six weeks more. That's not very high thought out, incredibly scientific training, but it would probably work just fine. Mm -hmm. First time you're doing 400 meters worth of downhill intervals fast. And then you're doing mile repeats on a slight decrease on a road somewhere. And then the next time you're doing 400 meters on the most technical terrain you can find, running as fast as you can on those 400s. And then you're doing mile repeats through boggy, swampy terrain. And then the yep. next time you're doing 400 meters worth of uphill and a mile worth of time uphill. So you get through three blocks and your engine has increased because you're hitting the correct intensity on both of those workouts for 18 straight weeks or for 36 straight weeks, whatever it's going to be. So your engine's built, but each time your skill at each one of those has changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that 12 weeks of time is enough to see true skill development and see solid improvements. Yeah, six weeks is. Yeah, yeah, and 12 weeks is more than enough to almost master a craft mm -hmm. and then add the the rest into, into your program or layer on top of it. Another thought that came to mind with me, another analogy would be in college, I was a C uh, student through my sophomore year. I crammed for tests, which would be like loading skill work. And then I lost all my 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 retention. And, and I also did not perform very well because I just couldn't fit it all in in like a short period of time. I 4-0'd my last five semesters in college. I went from a 2.3 GPA to a 4.0 my last five semesters. And the simplicity of it was this, is that I studied every single night after class, I absorbed the information from the day. And then all I had to do was skim over that in the future and add in the new information from the new class. And that way, when the test came, I had nothing left to do because I had worked it consistently over time. And the same thing comes, I didn't have to sit there and, and relearn all this material. I just had to skim it over real quick and stay fresh on it. And I retained everything I needed to once I built that foundational knowledge. Yep. So like, so like I just absorbed all that knowledge, absorbed all that knowledge. And all I had to do is skim it over real quick. And it was all right. There it is again. And I could move on to the next thing. And the same concept works. It's kind of outlining exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Absorb that knowledge. Just stay sharp on it once in a while. Put very little time into it. But once you have that bulk base, like then you're then you're good to go. And, and, it, and it worked kind of that way, too. It's just like a different way of outlining what you had just mentioned. Yeah, that's great. And uh, a story from OCR that highlights this is James Appleton. Mm -hmm. James Appleton is from the UK. He's a strong up and downhill runner, um, strong off-road. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I'm just wondering if you if he's still racing because he was such a feature in that Sufferfest documentary, him shivering in the shower yeah. and being so miserable. Is he still hitting it? Uh, not like he used to, no. No, okay. He's, I was still just... tra he still trains, he still races, but he's not a fixture of the sport like he used to be. Okay. I was curious. I'm Continue. sure he's, he's super fixed. I see him on Strava all the time doing big stuff, but he moved to a different part of the UK and I don't know the specifics of it, but we talked right before OCR worlds one year 
and he said, uh, I, I moved to this new place and I found their running group and we went out for a run and they ran the kind of technical terrain that we only see in races here as their daily runs. That's just the type of, that's all we had around here was the rockiest, loosest trails. It was on, he said, it was like running, uh, like you took all the water out of a creek bed and all the rocks that were left over there. That was what all the trails looked like. He said, mm-hmm. and we go out for runs and I'm in great shape. And I was dropped by every single one of these guys on my first two weeks of running. But by weeks four and then week six, I could finally just keep up with them on normal runs. But my fitness was still high. It had taken six weeks to keep up to that. He came to OCR Worlds that year and we did a team relay where they did points of emphasis for the relay. So the first, it was like two mile run and then uh, like a quarter mile heavy carry and then another mile and a half run by that same guy. And then Mm -hmm. a different guy did obstacles emphasis section and then the strength guy took over. Anyways, he blew people out of the water on the runs and we knew he was good in the mountains but we knew that a lot of people were faster than him and it didn't matter because it was so technical on the run no one could get into rhythm and he just just powered away on these really nasty slippery rocks because he had spent six weeks training with masters of that and suddenly his his skill level was all the way up to his fitness level he could access all of his fitness on that terrain and everyone else was trying to hit like 60 or 70% of their true speed on it. He could, he just had it. And that was yeah. one specific block of speed, technical terrain work paired with a lifetime of engine work. And he beat the best in the world. That reminds me of uh, another example of that would be Johnny Luna Lima. Mm-hmm. I think there's very, very, very few people that can access their fitness on a hard or technical descent. I think Johnny Luna Lima is one of the few who truly access their fitness on a descent. And that is a, is a skill set that he has practiced for some reason. I think he enjoyed it and then it's just honed in on it over the years. But like, have you ever run downhill and been passed by Johnny Luna Lima? Because I have, and I will tell you at the world champs, I was fortunate enough to still be ahead of him until we went into our first descent. And, um, and the way that that man, I could not access my fitness going downhill. All I could do is manage my footwork to keep my legs under me and go at a respectable rate. And I think I had like the seventh fastest descent or eighth fastest descent in the field. Johnny Luna Lima beat me to the bottom of that thing by like four minutes. You know how long that is in a descent that only takes 15 or 20 minutes? Four minutes? Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is, is that that guy practices that. If you listen to podcasts he's done, he practices that stuff regularly. It's another example where like he got so good at his craft that he could actually access his fitness. How often can you access your true fitness on a double black diamond bucket carry. Can you really access your fitness or is it other things giving out first? Um, Those things make a really, really, really big difference. And I never saw Johnny Luna Lima again in that race. That was a big difference maker. So it's just like another aspect you just kind of made light of, which is very interesting. And is that becoming so good at something that you can truly access your fitness while doing it? That's such a good point. Mm -hmm. That, That we have our fitness level and our sport is all about what's what percentage of that can you keep throughout a race? Whereas yeah. running is just like road running track, cross country. Cross country gets a little murky, but road and track is just your fitness level is your fitness level and your mental toughness lets you unlock as much of it as you can. Yeah. In off-road sports and in skill-based sports, it's how much does my skill allow me to access it? And you're absolutely right. I, I never knew the, I knew the feeling. I didn't know the words until you just said that. Mm-hmm. Descending in races, knowing... I'm not breathing nearly hard enough, but I can't work any faster. Correct. And it was that I didn't have the skill to stretch my fitness to its limits. 
there's only a certain type of terrain that I can descend on that hits my fitness level. The rest I don't have the skill to keep up with. And that's that's really interesting. So I guess that's another table that you make on your paper in your training log, which is in heavy carries, how much of my fitness can I keep? On technical terrain, how much of my fitness? On uphills, downhills, on rolling hills, and hot weather, cold weather, all of that. Where are my biggest deficiencies? Where am I ranking with how much I can unlock? And that can drive it. And I would argue most people can access their fitness running. Let's just call it pure running on flat terrain. Most people can yep. access fitness. I would argue most people can access their fitness ascending. Yep. Unless it's super technical or you're at elevation and you're and you live at. Or sea. if it's super steep and your calves and Achilles aren't used to getting stressed at that angle, sure. you That's can fair. have to back off just because of that. But you're right. Uphill generally fitness translates. I would say flat and uphill you can access your fitness, and then you have all the other components, which are technical terrain, descending, carries. And then can you can say access my fitness on like a barbed wire crawl? I don't know. Maybe you can get so good at the barbed wire crawl that you can say at 180. I can't, but just something else to think about. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, uh, as as we sort of heading to wrapping this thing up, Bracken, uh, I know we a little all over the place, but I think we got our point across pretty well. And the fact is like choose your weaknesses, hone your craft and layer them in appropriately as we sort of build towards next season. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to kind of sink your teeth into? No. No, I just want to reiterate that there are skills like uphill running that can be done all year because they're not damaging, but -hmm. because they're not damaging, they can also be done in the last six to eight weeks. There are certain skills that you have to work on early and then maintain and others that you have to do late. Mm -hmm. So figure out which your skill sets, uh, which of your skill set is lacking and prioritize the ones that need to be addressed upfront. You know, we, we stick with the pay now, pay later advice find what you have to pay first and pay it off yeah yeah i think that's actually really simply put and it's also like really good takeaway for people who are still maybe scratching their heads a little bit saying well what is the thing i'm going to focus on so that's good advice so let's let's wrap up we didn't discuss this but let's wrap up with each of us prioritizing what we would do so looking at your skill sets kirk where do you give away time that you shouldn't be because you're lacking skill, not because you're lacking fitness, because you're lacking skill. Well, and I'm going to just spin this another way. And that is my, the biggest skill I lack is staying injury free. Mm. And so hands down, my focus is going to go into biomechanical efficiency. As soon as I return to this, um, I think because uh, I have other weaknesses within the sport and I have other strengths within the sport for sure, but none of them do me any good if I'm injured. And so if I can't stay injury free, then all of this conversation is for not, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess I'm, I'm really skirting your question, but I'm answering it almost as perfectly or pertinently as I could right now, saying working on the skill of becoming injury free. And that goes back to my biomechanics and maybe just the general overview of, of my training and recovery. So those are the skills that I'm going to focus on as soon as I'm back to running. Um, if we want to talk race specific, mm-hmm. um, Race specific, I still feel like uh, climbing uh, eternally is going to be something that I need to focus on, and I will always have a block in that. But I also know, like, I will be 38 come next racing season, and a little bit of my top end speed is slipping. Um, I think I can carry with anybody or out carry anybody most days of the week um, based on just my strength background. So I will be doing a little more purposeful speed work 
earlier in training blocks to start to work that skill. Um, and then I'm going to infuse climbing into that and maintain the carry and grip work I've already worked hard to build over the last few years. But step one, biomechanical efficiency and staying injury free and pick, picking out what it's going to take for me to do. That's where I'm at. I like How that. about you? Well, I'm just going to speak as if I'm all the way back into fitness. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm starting essentially over. I mean, I have years of work behind me, but I'm seven months now of no running. Mm -hmm. So yeah. <laughs> fitness is nil. So assuming I'm back to the fitness I was at when I last felt good racing, you know, 2016, 2017, mm -hmm. that area, the places I got left behind in races were descents. And it wasn't steep descents. It was gradual and semi-steep. If I am at if I'm running down a ski hill or running down a shale hill or a rocky You're descent, great at technical descents. We've done that together. Technical descents are probably your jam. They they certainly are. I would say Johnny Luna Lima, I can't touch there. I know that. I think he might Nobody be the best at that in the world. But I would say that maybe Ryan uh, John Albin, I'm not as good at. And then Ryan Atkins. Outside of that, I don't know if there's really anyone that I fear in a technical downhill dis, uh, a steep descent. But if I'm running down fire road or I'm running down smooth grass or even like 5 to 10% descents, I'm disproportionately bad at that. And it is a it's a mechanical issue. This reminds me of when we've done our big training weekends at in Wausau where we mm -hmm. have a five to 700 foot ski hill, which is literally Mount Everest. For oh, 1200. That one runs over a thousand. Well, the trail we were using was like five to 700. Sure. Um, and the top of this descent, we were doing a workout where we were doing 30, on, 30 seconds on 30 seconds off to the top, very intense 30 seconds on. And as soon as we got to the top, we descended at race effort and we turn around and the top 200 feet of that descent were very technical, mm -hmm. very rocky. And in fact, I was almost in awe of how fast, I mean, it took every fiber in my being to keep up with. It. In fact, you would gap me a little bit at certain points on that first 200. And then that last three or 400 feet of that descent sort of leveled out, mm -hmm. sort of became less worried about footing. And you were gone. And, and I was gone. But the point being, if you could have a Palmerton descent, yep. you know, every workout, you might be, it was just very interesting to see, like, even within that skill set of descending, you were a master of technical. It was amazing watching your footwork. In fact, it has to come back to your basketball days, your ball sport days, because it's impressive. But as soon as you could open it up, I finally caught you and then was able to pass you. And it was just, if that whole descent was technical, I think you would have been gone. And if it was vice versa, then I would have been gone. So it was just very interesting honing your craft within the craft when yeah. you bring that up. And so that that's that skill set I know that in the past when I was running with the top guys in the sport, some would out climb, but I could hang decently well in sprints and supers. Some would out carry, but very few would. Some would be a little quicker through obstacles, but very few would. They'd either just be faster than me or they would drop me on long descents. Uh, Breckenridge mm -hmm. one year, I got to the top of the mountain in between Albin and Atkins in a sprint and we were 20 minutes into the race. Good place to be. I mean, that's that's. I wasn't a great climber, but I could empty the tank and had a high enough fitness level that I got to the top with those two guys. And they got to the bottom in time that they both did burpees at the spear. And I got out of the spear, made it, and I was about eight seconds behind Atkins. So they put over a minute on me mm -hmm. just from the top of the mountain to the bottom. And that was that fire road descending. 
Mm. And and I just couldn't do it. So even even back then, I knew there's something structurally wrong in my stride the way I descend down, and I couldn't open up and run the way they did. So that would be again, I have a long road to get back to that fitness. But let's say I do, that weakness won't have fixed itself with time off. They keep talking about hip mobility. Those guys that can descend. And well. I, anyone who knows me as an athlete, knows that I am a stiff athlete. Yep. So I'm just, that's just what I'm thinking. Like, as I'm hearing you talk, like, uh, I might want to get on that Taylor Cruz train. I have plans for it. Yep. I'm actually working on it. But, and, and, and we're just outlining right now to them, like, if we're talking about being students of the sport, we're talking about getting better. We all know our weaknesses. We all know what we need to focus on. And it's not like, oh, we're, go- we're top 10 in this sport. So it's all gravy. Like, no, you need to hone in on something. And it's good to hear you outline. Like, we're both very aware of what we need to work for on. Sure. And I hope everybody else is too. And you're 11th at Worlds. If you do the exact same thing again this year, you're going to take 16th because five people are going to have been hungrier and are going to improve more. You might take 20th, but if you make the next level up, you hold your spot or you move up to eighth or fifth, you know, or whatever it is that there is no such thing as remaining the same in a sport. You're either actively improving or you're getting worse. That's so true. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people have been doing a lot of good work in this time, this time off in quotes, and I think you're going to see some really, you're going to see some athletes that have slipped when you told the line for the first time. And you're going to see some athletes that you go, oh, damn, that dude's a monster now. So don't be the dude who slipped. Be the monster. That's right. So my final piece of advice, this is how I'm wrapping this up, Kirk. You can have whatever outro you want. This is how I'm finishing mm-hmm. up. The way I really like to think about my off season is what would scare me the most if someone else did something over the off season? What mm-hmm. skill set? Let's say there's a, someone that's just as good as me and we go back and forth every race. If we got to the next race and we talked the night before the race, what would terrify me the most to find out? Mm-hmm. That's probably what you should do. What would terrify you the most? For me? Yeah. Finding out that someone had spent all off season raising their volume and really specifically working downhill quality work. Okay. I think, oh man, they're going to be able to maybe outrun me because their volume and their intensity of their running has been better. But I know that my only chance is to be ahead of them when we get to the downhill because they're going to smoke me there. Yep. Yep. It's a good point. Yeah. I like that. Think about what would scare you about knowing your competition has been focusing on. Yep. And that might be something that probably means you need to work on it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all I want to wrap this thing up is uh, last training Tuesday or the one before, we had said, hey, we haven't gotten a lot of reviews lately. And uh, it's making me feel a little sad. I just looked before we recorded this and uh, we got like another like eight to 10. I think people people stepped up. And I just like, I I know it's like, yeah, everybody's got busy lives and just taking the 30 seconds of three minutes to write that out. Like we got some uh, some more reviews. And so thank you to those who had done that. I just took the time to read them. You know what we also did, Kirk? Huh? We lost one of our reviews. We did. We had always had two three-star reviews and two two-stars, and now we're down to one two-star. Somebody so, changed their someone mind. Someone changed their mind. Or, Thank you. Or they just they tried to change it to one and they misclicked. Mm. Well, I'll take it. Someone changed <laughs> their mind. Yeah. If we can change one mind today, it was a success. And I'm kind of, I think, potentially a gentleman by the name of Ben Kinsinger, or you run, bro, I think is his... Uh, is his handle had given us a four-star written review and he rewrote a five-star review. So that might've bumped us up the tally too. I, I made note of that because I know who he is and he's a good, he's a good athlete. In fact, he was third at OCR worlds a few years ago in the short course um, who listens to the podcast. But anyways, if that is true, Ben, thanks for the upgrade. I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. <laughs> awesome. All right. All right. Make your lists, 
check it twice, just like the old Santa <laughs> man would do, and show up next year with, with gifts and treats for all the people you're about to race. Ooh, I like that. Thank you.